Hello, everyone. This is Cameron Roberson from the Brooklyn Speculative Fiction Writers, and we are here today to talk about Theodore Goss, or more specifically, to talk to Theodore Goss. What follows is an interview that I did with her at ReaderCon 27, and the reason we're doing this now is really, well, there are two reasons we're doing this now. One, BSW is going to ReaderCon 28, where we will be launching the Kickstarter for Season 2 of our podcast, The Kaleidocast, and Theodore Goss is one of our headliners in Season 2. And the second reason, and really the more topical reason, is that Theodore Goss just released her latest novel called The Strange Case of the Alchemist's Daughter. Um, definitely listen to this interview before you read it, because it will give you some pretty interesting uh, background and context uh, behind the novel that she has written. It's brilliant, it's beautiful, and uh, yeah, you should go and buy it. So, without any further ado, here is part one of our three-part interview with Theodore Goss. Okay, you ready? Yep. Okay. Hello, readers and writers of Brooklyn Speculative Fiction. Um, I am sitting down with uh, Theodora Goss. Oh, say hello, Theodora. Hi. <laughs> uh, so you know I'm not lying. <laughs> I'm really here. Cool. And we're at ReaderCon. You just finished, uh, which, um, did you just finish a panel? I just that? finished a panel. It was a panel on animals and magic and why animals don't have magic, which was an interesting topic because we... What we usually see in fantasy is that animals are magic mm -hmm. and human beings do magic. I think that was one of the big conclusions that we came to in our panel. Yeah, and like trying to figure out if you were to have an animal doing magic, how would you do that in a way that's not just another human being in an animal's skin? Right. Yeah. Because animals obviously have their own agendas and their own ways of thinking. So if you have a bee, what would bee magic look like? Like, what would a bee try to produce through magic? Mm -hmm. What kind of spells would a bee do? I bet a bee would dance its spells rather than yeah. speaking its yeah. spells. Yeah, one thing we didn't talk about is like is is um, is uh, animal language. You know, so language is a we lot. We didn't to do. talk about that. That's really interesting, actually. Yeah, and how you know that would be like an, the bee's language and how they would produce their spell. You know, and if there's regular bee language, but then there has to be that esoteric bee language. The best person to write about that is actually Ursula Le Guin, and I don't know how familiar you are with her stories um, that that are really written from an animal's consciousness. There is uh, one, I'm trying to remember what it's called, it may be just called Mazes, but you read the story and you realize that the character telling the story is a mouse in a laboratory and there's a scientist making the mouse go through mazes and to the from the scientist's perspective this is an experiment in how fast the mm -hmm. mouse can go through the maze but the mouse is actually performing a dance and trying to communicate with the scientist this is a kind of um dance that is a language and and the mouse is talking about how it will die of despair at not being able to communicate but it's it has a completely different way of looking at things. But see, now that right there, that is that is the fantasy element because I mean, obviously. But 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 the distinguish that from from semi science fiction would be there is no mouse language, right? I was going to write the mouse dance as far as we can tell, right? Right. Uh, it, it, but if they were to figure out some kind, of, this is this is the scientific component to this, and that we know that mice communicate in this way, dancing something that I guess we would do. But still, you would even though it's a human thing, we still would not interpret it because mice don't dance. Right. 
That's a good question. Is that a science fiction story? Is it a fantasy story? Is it something in between? And, you know, with Ursula Le Guin, it's very hard to categorize a lot of what she's doing anyway. Yeah. She sort of just does it, and then you go, okay, now how do we fit into it into different categories? Yeah. I just finished reading, uh, this is actually a class on Ursula Le Guin's The Laugh of Heaven. Yes. And, like, there's just, there's so much specifics purposeful ambiguity there right that that it's almost pointless to try and distinguish it you just say this is what she's trying to make you think about which i think is really really cool exactly i um just wrote up a book proposal this is going to be a book on ursula gwen and um assuming that you know everything goes right this is a book i'll be writing for the university of illinois press um it's going to cover uh her career uh, her life. It's going to be about all of her most important books. And I actually had a problem with that book because there's a chapter on science fiction and a chapter on fantasy. And I had to argue that this was science fiction because it's about a man who dreams the world. He keeps dreaming and the world keeps changing. Mm -hmm. And that's not a scientific thing, right? That's that's magical. That's well, fantastical. Well, it, I guess that depends, right? Because I'm going back to other, other interviews you've done uh, where we have this real ism, right? So we have to make room for this, take off the ism, expand that idea of what real is. Yeah. And like there's the science, she puts a lot of very hard science about sleep and sleep studies in there. She does. Yeah, yeah, she does. And so my argument was it feels like science fiction. The, the thing at the center may be magical or it may be something we can't explain. It's a little bit of hand-waving. But then she does this anyway. We have um, things that are supposed to be scientific devices like the Ansible, right, which allows interstellar communication. She doesn't tell us how that works. She's no. like, there's this thing. It allows interstellar communication. Let's get on to the rest no. of the story. It's like it goes on to one of the things I want to talk to you about specifically. Yeah. Um, so first, <laughs> your education. So most writers, they, they'll go to Odyssey or Clarion. You taught at Odyssey as well, or I, was it Clarion? Odyssey? I went to Odyssey and Clarion, and I taught at Odyssey. You taught yeah. at Odyssey. Not many writers say, you know what, I want a PhD as well so I, I can i can think of and specifically yeah. a phd in uh, 19th century gothic literature yeah it, it's a phd in english literature but my dissertation was on 19th century late 19th century gothic literature so basically i studied monsters i studied uh i wrote about dracula and dr jekyll and mr hyde and carmilla uh which is an early vampire story that a lot of people don't know about and and um by early i mean 1870s you know, that's a really interesting question. And if you go back and look at the way that female monsters are written about mm -hmm. in this time period, a lot of them go back to Lilith. Why did you want to talk specifically about monsters or female monsters and that's mm -hmm. why you did it? There's a reason I did the PhD and there's a reason I did the dissertation. I did the PhD because um, I wanted to be a writer. And I had this idea about being a writer, and I have a tendency to complicate things for myself immeasurably. So I thought, well, how do I learn to be a great writer? Study all of English literature. <laughs> that's how you do it, right? So that's what I did. What I said, does. what is the hardest way I can do this? Um, and it was doing a PhD, but I learned an enormous amount during yeah. my PhD. You think you, you, you climb Mount Everest, every other mountain seems like it. Eh. Right, I was like, let's climb Mount Everest. And it, it was really hard. And in the middle of it, I thought, I don't know if I'm going to survive, but I survived finally. The PhD I did because um, I noticed something. 
What I noticed in my reading was that when we look at monsters, and I think monsters are fascinating for a number of reasons, which we could talk about, but when you look at monsters, most of the modern monsters we have were generated, were created at a particular time period or became really important during a particular time period. And that time period is about uh, 1870 to 1900. It's only 30 years. And in that 30 year period, you have Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, you have Carmilla, you have The Great God Pan, which is a more obscure novel that a lot of people don't the, know about. Sorry, the Great God Pan. The Great Pan. God Pan by Arthur Machen. Yeah. Um, which is another female monster story. Mm -hmm. You have um, uh, The Island of Dr. Moreau. Mm -hmm. You have The Picture of Dorian Gray. All of these books cluster around that time period. Now, just to be clear, because I, I, I don't know enough about Gothic literature, so to define Gothic literature, it's of this time period specifically about these monsters. Is it a genre, speculative genre? Gothic literature really goes back 100 years before this. Okay. So this is like a Gothic revival. Well... The original Gothic period is actually at the end of the previous century. It's at the end of the 1700s, post-Revolutionary War, which influenced the French Revolution. Mm -hmm. um, it is around that time period. So the, revo the, the Revolutionary War is around the same time period, but really the centerpiece for European Gothic fiction is the French Revolution. And that's when you have these classic Gothic writers like uh, uh, Godwin, and Radcliffe, etc. Um, that's nowadays that stuff is a little bit more obscure, but mm -hmm. that's where the Gothic as a literary genre started. And Frankenstein comes right at the tail end of that. So that's that's the first Gothic period in terms of the genre of Gothic literature. So that's the original Gothic period. And then what happens is it goes away a little bit. There's still strains of the Gothic there. You can see it in Dickens, for example. Um, but then at the end of the century, it comes back in a really powerful way. And the Gothic tends to be associated with times of political instability. So um, we would expect our period, I think, yeah. to be one with a great interest in the Gothic, and that's exactly what you see. Werewolves, we see a, a great resurgence of fantasy literature right now. Um, we see the cyborg, right? We see... Um, Vampires. Vampires came back right at the end of the last century. You could see it in like the 80s, the 90s, mm -hmm. and Rice. So that's another turn of the century and another Gothic period. So we have 17, late, late 1700s, original Gothic. Okay. Um, late 1800s, a resurgence of the Gothic. That's what I was studying. Okay. Because that's the beginning of the modern monster. That's, that's the configuration that our monsters come out of. And then nowadays, at the end of the last century, at the end of the 1900s, into our own period, we have another resurgence of the Gothic. So you can see it as these like three like Gothic periods. Yeah, it's like little peaks. So that's where my dissertation was coming from. And the question I asked was, why this 30-year period? And the answer that took me only 400 pages to explain was, if you're saying this is the 30-year period, right? Mm -hmm. And you say this started in the 1870s, you look at what happened in the 1860s. And what happened in the 1860s is that you had the rise of anthropology for the first time, the study of human beings as a, as a formal academic discipline. And the rise of anthropology at that time was deeply influenced by Darwin's theory of evolution. So it's the study of human beings, mm -hmm. and it's the study of human beings in evolutionary terms, 
And then you have this upswing in literature about monsters. And that is another way of exploring what it means to be human. Okay, so I, I just happened to be reading, or what's wrong, listening to this um, this uh, podcast about Frankenstein. Uh-huh. And uh, that happened where she wrote, where she started read, writing that at the time there was that volcanic explosion and the, that volcanic eruption that covered the earth. Now you had these immigrants or peasants basically going all over the going all over Europe. You had more monster monsters to deal with. That you think that had an impact, or is that just kind of again on the tail end of? I think there were a lot of things. I'm sure that. Movements of peoples had to do with it. Um, we tend to we tend to turn immigrants into monsters, right? And I say that as an immigrant myself. You know, I know this from the inside out. Um, but we t- we tend to turn things that we think are different from ourselves into monsters. So we tend to monsterize um, immigrants, foreigners, etc. Uh, the other thing was the French Revolution. Mary Shelley's real innovation in that book, though, was that the monster talks. There's very little from that time period and even later where the monster gets to talk. And that was a a really important move in the literature. Um, And if you get to the end of Frankenstein, you know, the average student getting to the end of Frankenstein is actually pretty sympathetic to the monster, even though it's obvious that he's he's a killer, he's he's a murderer. But the point she's making is that he is turned into that by a society that casts him out. So she's talking not just about what a monster is, but how monsters are created. So, I mean, the reason we still read it is that it's an absolutely revolutionary book. I don't think it's a coincidence that it was written by a woman and that it was written by the daughter of Godwin and Mary Wollstonecraft, both of whom were revolutionary figures and both of whom were... um, really criticized by the society of their day for being political radicals. So right now you're still talking about European European Gothic. Yeah. Um, so on the other side of the ocean, would Lovecraft fit? He does. He's kind of, Lovecraft is funny because he comes at a time when other people aren't necessarily doing it, it, it's almost like after the Gothic period, okay. but he's trying to write in such in an antiquated way, and he's looking back. Okay. I mean, he's even looking back to Poe, um, and uh, but 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 his Gothic has more to do with immigration. It has to do with um, people coming into the United States that are different, are foreign, are maybe Eastern European. Um, that look different, right. have a different skin color, speak different languages. It's this fear right. and his of the don't, other. And his monsters don't speak the same way that Frankenstein's does, do they? Not, uh, as, it depends. As... It's an interesting question. It depends on what you're talking about. He has a story that I think is really interesting and important, but it is one in which you hear the voice of a character, and the character tells you, I have been in this old castle in this forest, imprisoned all of my life and I don't know why and I want to reach the ground and you can see that it is it is climbing up the tower it reaches the ground it comes out it's coming out in a graveyard Um, and we can tell but it can't tell and then it goes and it sounds like a child uh, someone who's grown up in this place where it has not been it has not been told what it is and it goes it vaguely recognizes the countryside it goes to this castle where there are all these people having a party and it goes in and it sees this horrible image and everyone's screaming and yeah that's the the denouement that's the moment it it realizes that it's a mirror 
and that what's happened is that it's a monster and it's been trapped underground and people trapped it underground probably for a reason but it doesn't know that and so you know the entire story is from its perspective and it realizes um i think it's something like i saw my face in the something of polished glass mm -hmm. and what it does at the end is it goes join the other monsters <laughs> um so lovecraft is lovecraft is an interesting very controversial figure um, he does sometimes speak from the monster's perspective. And I think to the extent that we still read him, it's because he does sometimes do that. There are places where he gets out of his own prejudice. Huh. Um, and he, one of the things that's, that is powerful about his writing is the moments when the person we've been listening to realizes that he's a monster or transforms into a monster. And you realize that the monster is in the ordinary it's in the respectable uh new england family member and it's funny because like that's just like a that's a brief it can often be a really brief moment it's this moment of realization pick uh pickman's model we have a bit of that uh we have um degeneration uh lovecraft has stories in which you have a character who degenerates and goes down often it's a very respectable wealthy person mm -hmm. um, ends up like going down this evolutionary ladder and the funny thing is that by the time he was writing that was not really current anymore this idea of degeneration in that way really belongs to the end of the century i mean it, it belongs with the sort of stuff that i was studying in my um, doctoral dissertation so there's a way in which he's still looking back he's very much looking back he's he's not a writer that really looks forward to what's coming is it maybe it's because he's of it I think he was yeah I mean he was writing out of fears and paranoias and prejudices you know and he was looking back toward the past but he did see the monstrous in the ordinary yeah hence the mirror yeah so I want to come back a little bit more to to you mm -hmm. uh, but you do have coming up in uh, 2017-2018 yeah. two books about Mary Jekyll, Diana Hyde, Beatrice Rapacini, and I didn't realize who or what she was. I had to huh. Google her. I was like, I that is. You got to read that story. You know, it's Rapacini's daughter by Nathaniel Hawthorne. You know what? It's funny. There, I haven't read that story. I haven't uh -huh. heard of that story. However, there is a pop culture reference. Do you watch or any anime at all? Have you heard any Japanese? A anime? little no? bit more because my daughter is familiar with it than okay, anything else. Okay, so there is a there is a, a classic anime that you should not let your daughter read. Uh, watch, mm. by the way, uh -huh. uh, called uh, Ninja Scroll, and there is a woman, a, a ninja assassin, uh -huh. who her her talent, her skills, that her skin is conditioned with poison, huh, so that she can be touched. Oh, if you touch her, you die. You yeah. kiss her, you die. Uh, but again, going back to I guess the monsters. Right, and talk about this novel. The first one at least as the pursuit of my dissertation by other means mm -hmm. um, because I really didn't want to write an academic book following the dissertation what I wanted to do was something different I was studying monsters and the people who create monsters are often mad scientists so there were a lot of mad scientists in the books I was reading and I realized something which is that a lot of these mad scientists create female monsters Huh. Uh, and the funny thing is that something always goes wrong and we can go all the way back to Frankenstein. So Frankenstein creates his male monster and the male monster says, I want you to create me a mate. Mm -hmm. Frankenstein starts and then he's like, no, you know, I'm not going to create her because if you guys breathe, then you're going to create a race of monsters and you're going to outcompete humanity. So he, all of these body parts he's assembled, he takes them apart and he throws them into the sea. That's kind of the beginning. And then you have 
um, the island of Dr. Moreau. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Moreau, um, the whole time that the, the novel is happening, is creating a woman out of a puma. And she is the one who actually ends up killing him. But interestingly enough, very few people talk about her in the critical literature about the book. Huh. And then you have Beatrice Rappuccini, obviously, uh, who is created by her father, Dr. Rappuccini. She's a girl, but she works in her father's poisonous garden, and she becomes poisonous, so she becomes monstrous. Um, so you had those basic three. There, there are a couple of others, but I got really interested in this, and I thought, what if all of these girl monsters, what if all the mad scientists created girl monsters and they all met each other and they all got together and formed a club? And that's the book. The book is about how these girls end up finding each other. Now, when you say a club, is it more of a club for them to go out and do something or more like a support group? It's more like a support group. Well, I don't want to say too much about what's going to happen in the novel, but this part I think is going to be in the blurbs. So, um, yeah, it's a uh, it's a club, and it, it means that um, they can live together and be together. Because, yeah, sort of. It's And I wanted to write a book about a group of women specifically women monsters or girl monsters, um, because that's something that I don't see a whole lot in the literature. And, um, you know, we all know that we go to the movies and we have a group of guys and they're fighting crime and there's a girl mm-hmm. and she's the girl. Yeah, she breaks, her, she breaks the heel of her shoe. And... Yeah, yeah, she does something, but, but there's like the token girl. And I thought, well, hang on, I want to do something different. I want this to be a book about women and about monstrosity and uh and it takes place in late late 19th century late yeah late 19th century london which is exactly um the time period that i was studying and that concludes part one of my interview with theodore goss we're going to be having two more parts coming up very soon the part two was going to be on june 25th that's a sunday Um, Between then and now, you should definitely go and buy her book, The Alchemist's Daughter. And uh, while you're here on our website, you should check out the other blogs about ReaderCon 27 as BSW gears up for ReaderCon 28 and the launch of our Kickstarter for Season 2 of the Clydecast, which again will feature Theodore Goss. Until next time, this is Cameron Roberson from the Brooklyn Speculative Fiction Writers. And uh, I'm going to go uh, finish a story. Hopefully you will have been inspired from this interview with Theodore Goss. And you also will go out or go home or turn off the computer, uh, pick up a pen, and start writing as well. Bye-bye.